This is a Federal News Network podcast. Results are out for the 2022 Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, FEVS. The annual survey from the Office of Personnel Management produced a couple of ups and downs in the two years following the COVID-19 pandemic. Now federal employee attitudes seem to have calmed down a bit. Here with the details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And give us the big picture. These scores are out. We don't even have the prettified report yet. You got a spreadsheet and figured this all out, Drew. Right. There's a lot of raw data here to look at, Tom. But the big top line number that OPM really touts for this is that employee engagement is at 71 percent. That is actually the same score as it was last year for the 2021 FEVs, but it's a 1 percent drop from 2020's number. So that is relatively steady, but there were a couple dips in other areas and along other indices for this year's FEVs. For example, satisfaction for employees slipped from 64% last year now to 62%. Job satisfaction also down by 1%. And pay satisfaction, an even sharper decrease, 5% below what its score last year was now at 56% for 2022. Right. So, well, you've got the inflation factor. That could be why people aren't satisfied with their pay. And that level of satisfaction you said around the 60s, the mid-60s, that's pretty well below industry, too. They always track below industry, fair to say? It's actually relatively similar to the what we've seen in the private sector as well. So the survey that OPM referenced for it actually had a decline in private sector over the past two years by a total of 4%. So we're seeing similar trends between FEVs results and those of the private sector. Yeah, we've got all this quiet quitting and mass quitting of jobs and all this job mobility that's been going on. You read about this. So so to some degree that, I guess, affects those trends, maybe affect the federal government, although not the departures. People are pretty much sticking around. And these ups and downs from the last couple of years, you had a change in administration You have the ferment from COVID. What's behind some of these ups and downs? What are they saying? So like you said, Tom, those are big factors in it. In in what I've seen, telework and hybrid work are a huge driver of the numbers for FEVs. So for example, in the 2020 FEVs, we saw a solid increase in pretty positive results. That was at a time when, you know, a lot of people were starting to work remotely A lot of people were seeing their agency leaders kind of handling the pandemic in a way that they thought was really good, really doing really well. In 2021, we saw a pretty significant hit for that. That survey for FEVs for 2021 went out at a time when agencies were issuing return to office plans, which federal employees seem to be less excited about for the most part. Now we're seeing kind of a balance of some employees are coming back to the office and it's kind of evening out. Yes. So the timing of the surveys really does seem to have an effect year to year when they do it in the year, because it's not always exactly on the same date. And then there was, like you say, all this ferment about, am I coming back to work? Am I going to still continue to telework? That's when the survey hit. So that uncertainty factor might might be behind some of this. Absolutely. And that was something that changed for 2022 FEVs. The past two years, so 2020 and 21, we saw a delayed timeline for FEVs. So just due to the pandemic, they weren't able to get everything together in time. Now we're at a return to the typical schedule where they send out the survey in the spring. They release the results in the fall. So we're seeing a 
pretty tight turnaround. We saw the results of the 2021 FEBS just in the spring. Six months later, we're getting the results for 2022. So it's a shorter time window between the results here. Yeah, pretty soon they're going to be measuring them every month at this rate. (laughs) Really see a fever chart. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And what does OPM itself have to say about the results? So they did say that it is on par with the employee engagement for the U.S. workforce overall. That's something that they were saying everyone in the workforce, not just the federal workforce, is facing a lot of these questions about hybrid work, telework, returning to the office, everything like that. Morale is down in both the private and the federal sector. But OPM Director Kira Nahusha talked about feds being resilient, remaining engaged, and committed to public service. So trying to send out a positive message about these results for FEBS. And you've been covering this yourself a lot, Drew, this whole workforce topic. What do you see as some of the big themes and drivers of the results that just came out? So definitely telework was uh, number one. That was huge. But another thing that is actually new to this year's FEBS was that OPM added a new section to measure DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility practices. That was something that hasn't been in FEVS before. So they're kind of getting this benchmark baseline number for how do agencies approach DEIA. This year, 69% of government-wide respondents said that they have positive perceptions of agencies' DEIA practices. Number is fairly interesting within itself, but it's something where Over the next couple of years, we'll see if that goes up or down. That's something else that has been a huge push for the Biden administration is these DEIA best practices. So we'll see if that measure changes over time. Sure. And the other big question people like to follow is what feds have to say about their immediate supervisors and senior agency leadership. Right. So typically a trend for feds is that immediate supervisors have relatively high scores. Senior agency leaders have low scores. And it seems like it could be you see your immediate supervisor every day, you work with them more directly so you can understand the work that they're putting in. Senior agency leaders higher up, they're a public facing figure and you can maybe place more of the blame on them for some things. So this year, for example, we saw 84 percent of respondents agreeing that their supervisor supports employees efforts to stay healthy and safe while working. Eighty four percent. That's compared with 10% lower, so 74% of respondents said that their senior leaders were supporting policies and procedures to protect employees' health and safety. So very similar questions, but the senior leaders got a much lower score for that. Interesting. You'd think people are working in coal mines when they're so (laughs) concerned about health and safety. The average, I mean, there are dangerous federal workplaces if you're on the border as an agent. Sometimes TSA people have very bad encounters, right. you know, law enforcement. But, you know, the average office worker, it's not so bad in the United States. Yeah, I do think much of that question is kind of pointing to health and safety regarding COVID-19 and how managers and senior leaders are, are dealing with all of that. Right. And everybody hates mahogany row because it's a mahogany row. And so <laughs> where all the senior leadership is, you're just not going to like it systemically. Anything else new from OPM, from the survey? What else do we need to know here? So one other factor that they kind of asked about was this relatively new paid parental leave program, which offers 12 weeks of paid leave for new parents. That's something that kind of ramped up in 2020. And about when they measured this for this 2022 FEVs, about 4% of federal employees said they were using the program. And almost 20% actually didn't take off the full 12 weeks that were available. 
And more than half of those who didn't take the full 12 weeks said it was because they didn't feel like they could be away from their job responsibilities for that long. So it seems like that's something that OPM is trying to just measure for the future to see how people are using that new program. All right. So here we are in late October. And when will the Partnership for Public Service take all of these scores and get us the best places to work? That's kind of a spring gamut pretty much, right? Yeah. It seems like if the timeline lines up with how it has in the past from pre-pandemic, it'll be another couple of months at least before we see that come out. All right. And NASA has a nice new shiny telescope everybody's thrilled about. And maybe by then they will have launched their STS rocket to test out the Mars flight. So we can guess what's Mm -hmm. going to happen there. Yep. If they get the number one spot again, it'll be 11 years in the making. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. 
I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, so he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, 
right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. What's that place you've always wanted to try? Well, you're there. Sharing plates with just one bite. Or on second thought, maybe not sharing. It's that good. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.